Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for all the many wonderful things that you do for us, Lord, and your faithfulness um, and just hearing about uh, caring for us in such a wonderful way and, and bringing us through surgeries, bringing us through all kinds of things. Um, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your son as the ultimate sign of your faithfulness to us. And we pray, Lord, as we study the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that we would uh, truly come to see that all the things that we go through in this life, all the afflictions and the sorrows of this life are just a drop in the bucket in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that you are preparing for us. And let us let that sink into us, Lord, today as we study these things and think about these things. And it's in your Son's name we ask. Amen. So this is the, the last week going through the Apostles' Creed, uh, week 10. And we're closing with the last section, I believe, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Um, so this is kind of just, in many ways, the finale of all the things that we've talked about before, but a really, really important aspect of the Christian, Christian hope that we have. And so we'll look at three things. First, the resurrection of the body, how that relates to our glorification, and then finally, what heaven and life everlasting is, what our true hope is as Christians. Um, so first, the resurrection of the body. Um, as we often say that there's two you know, big certainties in life, and that's death and taxes. And in our day, in our society, we oftentimes do not think about death in the real sense that it, that it is, that Scripture portrays it as this great enemy. That Scripture portrays one of life's main certainties not as a friend, but as the great destroyer of life. And it's not something that should be celebrated. It's not something that should be extolled as release from the, from like our soul being released from our bodies and thus going to freedom. Um, but when our body and soul separate, we only become in many ways a shadow of what we were. And it's not what we were made for. Our body is, is very much a part of who we are. It's not just this apparatus for our, how we navigate this life, but it's who we are as body and soul. So without it, we, we lose the power to make things. We, we lose the power to interact with people. We lose the power to really live the life that we were meant to have. Um, if you think of someone who is a paralytic, if you think of someone who has some disability in comparison to someone who doesn't. That is in many ways the kind of thing that we're seeing that death does to us. It, it, it makes us no longer have the same functions and capacities that we were made for. And death is an even more extreme understanding of what that is. So someone who's totally disembodied is not living that life that God has intended uh, because, as we've talked about in previous weeks, sin has come into this world and evil has come into this world, and the wages of those things is death. The, the taskmaster of the devil has given us this great burden by us following into sin, and the wage for that, the payment for those things, is death. So death is a evil thing that has come into this world. It doesn't nullify our existence, um, but in a real sense it does start destroying what God has intended for us. 
it's the pinnacle of evil in this world. But the Bible doesn't really deal with evil and the problem of evil with, with like speculation and like all these different kind of questions. It primarily deals with the question in terms of a promise, in terms of like this great dramatic intrusion by God coming into history. It doesn't tell us why he allowed evil to happen. We can talk about those kind of things, but it really answers those problems with God coming into the mess himself, coming into that evil and that death and destruction and him delivering us out of that. And that's the promise. Like that's what God is doing throughout his scripture is showing how he's undoing the evil that we've brought into the world. And so death is really a fundamental human problem that is really final. Um, And in many ways, if we don't know how to deal with death, if, if we don't have answers for those things, then then nothing in this life can be seen worthwhile. Because if we're all just going to the grave and there's nothing but besides that, we're just six feet under and there's nothing that happens, then, you know, it's as Paul said, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no reason to be moral or religious or anything like that, to be good. It's just like his argument is like, no, even if there's a God, but Jesus didn't specifically rise from the dead, then we need to throw all this out. There's no reason to be moral. Like that's like how dramatic he makes it. Um, And there's no philosophy or religion or anything that could be any real use to us if it doesn't deal with this primal, this huge problem in the human life. And this thing that ends human life. And that is why this is one of the places that Christianity just really stands out among all the human philosophies and religions that surround us, that it is alone the religion that says death is actually a reality. It's not just an illusion, but it also that death is conquered. So like whatever other philosophy people may adopt they have to either, in a serious way, ignore death, or they kind of have to look at it in a positive light, or that it doesn't even, it's just an illusion. That the body and the pain that we go through is just an illusion, and we have to transcend our embodiment. But Christianity says, like, no to all those things because they're not really realistic. At the end of the day, nobody really believes that kind of garbage. Like, we, when we go through pain, we actually go through it, and it's real suffering, and it's real evil, and God, if, we, if there is a God, if he doesn't actually deal with that, then we shouldn't waste our time. Um, we shouldn't be wasting our time with any of this. Uh, but the Christian faith, the Christian hope, is really resting in this fact that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, and he lives eternally in heaven, and when he comes back, when history stops and that day comes, that that death will be defeated finally and that we will be raised bodily and God is going to transform our lowly bodies just to be just like his. So this is the hope that all who have died in Christ, all Christians at his appearing, will come out when Jesus' voice is crying out from the heavens 
and the resurrection of life starts to happen, when Jesus comes back and returns. And so the raising of this body, the resurrection of the body, is not just life after death. It's life after life after death. It's meaning that our whole body is going to be not only brought back to life, but restored and made immortal and how it was meant to be forever. That not just the soul, not just parts of me, but all of me, all of you, will be this creative, live human with undying life. With undying life that was made for God and with God to be with him forever. And so like that is the the thing that sets Christianity apart from all these other religions. Um, and I think that today that there's a lot of confusion about these two doctrines because a lot of us could have been raised with the idea that salvation is salvation from this world, salvation from our embodiment. Um, whether it's like this big dramatic picture of the rapture where we're going to be raptured up into heaven and we're just going to be with him as like souls just like having this giant worship scene just forever. Or the world is going to be like having this apocalyptic destruction where it's just like waves crashing and everything's dying and everything is just like destroyed. Um, or it's just kind of like this traditional view of like heaven is going to be the streets of gold and in some sense we're just going to fly away. I'll fly away, Lord, and we're just going to be with him in heaven like angels like floating around with harps. Um, there's all kinds of different visions that people have and and then the pendulum swings in the other direction where salvation is just people thinking it's just oh it's just human flourishing on this earth and we are doing kingdom work now and all these different kinds of ideas um, that in many ways miss the fullness of this picture that the Bible is actually displaying um, a lot of people can think heaven is, is going to be really boring and it can be just like this idea of like thinking we're just having these continual eternal worship services and and so a lot of people are like okay that, does, that doesn't sound any, very interesting or fun uh, but I think that's all getting at it the wrong way because the Christian hope the ultimate hope is not that I'm going to go to heaven when I die that is not the main thing that the creed or, or historic Christianity has said is our hope. Um, the Christian hope is, I believe, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The soul does not want to be stripped away from our embodiment. Uh, Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, that while we are still in this tent, which is his metaphor for the body, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed with that tent, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So here he's saying like that his hope, yeah, it's good to be away from the body and with the Lord, but he says the ultimate hope is that our embodiedness would be clothed with immortality, with, with actual life, so that this age of present age of sin and death is going to vanish away like a fog and we're going to see what it means to be truly human with immortal life which is which is embodiedness and so this heaven here is is 
when we think about heaven and what we do when we die, heaven is not the glorious finale, uh, but it's just it's just the way station until the greater resurrection of the body, until the, the final hope of the new heavens and new earth, where we're going to be fully embodied humans. Um, so heaven itself is, uh, in a sense, purgatory. Um, not, I mean, well, purgatory in the, in the sense that... Uh, until we do the yeah, but we're not, like, burning off our right, sins. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just mean the, the way station. Yeah, in some sense, like the saints are in heaven in the book of Revelation. They're crying out, how long, O Lord? And there's, they're waiting for justice. They're waiting for God to come down and have the resurrection of the body and the judgment. They're waiting for all things to be made right. So even in heaven, we're not going to be happy in, that, in, the, in the ultimate sense until we are further clothed with our resurrected bodies. So... Yeah. I, I've always like been confused about that. Like Yeah. Once you're once you're separated from seed, you can see too. When, once we're separated from this existence, yeah. like, uh, there was always a part of me that kinda of wondered, like, are you separated from time itself once you exit right. this dimension, you know, this dimensional realm? Like, do you experience that waiting? I mean you just yes. said it. They're 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 saying how long the Lord, right? right? There's a certain sense that there is time, and they're waiting for the fulfillment of promise, yeah. and they are, in some sense, like that. Experiencing time and space is part of what it means to be human and creatures. Yeah. That's kind of like how um, we exist in this world as finite creatures. So I think that even in, even in heaven, this, we're going to be when we die with the Lord, we're going to be waiting for our. our final resurrection but yeah that's a good point um so the great hope that you know like that paul and the whole new testament is portraying is that we are going to be like jesus in every way that he's in his immortal body in his resurrected body in the heavens right now and he's preparing that for us he's preparing this image that we see in revelation 21 where the new creation is like this city um, that's going to come down from heaven and heaven will meet earth. And it's going to be this transformation of everything and it'll be this perfect harmony that that was meant from the beginning. Um, so that, the intermediate state is what we, say, is we, we call it, is is a good hope. It's the glorious thing that we're not going to just be in the grave when we die. We're going to be, when we're away with the body from the body, we are going to be present with the Lord, as Paul says. But that ultimately is just not the final hope, not the real hope that we have as Christians. The real hope is the cosmic restoration of all things. And, um, but now, right, at this moment, even though that salvation has been begun and it's been accomplished, and Jesus is bringing people into that. Uh, right now, we're, our bodies are succumbing to this present evil age. They're still feeling the weight of that. And we are waiting for God to put an end to that corruptibility. We're waiting for God to raise us to incorruptibility, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, 
the new birth has already occurred. Heaven, in some sense, the blessings of heaven are already being born in our heart. The spirit has been given and we're being renewed inwardly, but we're waiting for the moment when that meets the, the outward reality, when faith gives way to sight and where our bodies and everything will be perfected. Um, that is ultimately the goal. It's this marriage supper of the Lamb that we read in the book of Revelation where it'll be like this best party where all our old friends are reunited and everyone that's gone before us and everyone that's going to come after us will be gathering, eating, and feasting. And the whole picture is this real embodied joy and delight that we're going to be experiencing. Um, the God that calls out to us in the, in, the, in the whole scripture is constantly painting all these pictures of feasts, of festivity, of gladness, and in some sense fulfilling what it means to be human for the first time. Uh, and so when, we, when we're confessing this, this statement about the new creation and the world to come, it's a confession that God is going to redeem our bodies and this whole world and even though we may not know exactly what God is going to carry from this old world into that new world, we, we can have confidence that God, in many ways, still uses our work, uses our lives, and uses all the things that he's doing through us to, in some sense, start reflecting the new heavens and new earth, to start being like little snapshots of the kingdom to come, like little teasers or movie previews, that the church in many ways is that. It's a preview of, of coming attractions. And God is, is showing even now, even though we still have that ultimate hope, he's showing now through us and as the church in our daily lives and vocations, in our families, when that peace and forgiveness starts coming in, he's showing the kingdom and, he, and he's bringing us that preview of coming attractions. Um, and so that's, that's the, the resurrection of the body is our final hope. And, and so that very much relates to our second point of glorification. Um, but what is, what is glorification? Um, as we talked about before, many religions see that salvation is an attempt to leave our bodies. But that's not the way that it is with Christianity. That we will not, in many ways, behold God in the, in the way that we were meant to, behold Jesus without our bodies. That scripture is clear that when Jesus appears, that we will be like him. And we will see him and we'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Um, Glorification is this moment when God's declaration of who we were in Christ when we first believed will finally come to its completion in our actual lives. Um, it's this beautiful picture where Jesus comes and everything that he's already said is true of you is going to be perfectly complete and we're going to be able to see it. And the sin that is so marred and distorted and warped our bodies will finally be completely destroyed. The good work that God began in us, 
He said he's going to complete that final word that God is going to bring about will bring us into perfection just like his son. And Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, we now see in a mirror dimly, but then when the hope end of all things comes, he said, then face to face. He's saying our face will see the face of God and Jesus. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So right now we're in this kind of tension where we're living by faith and we're going to, we're, we're by faith beholding God. He completely knows us and he loves us. But on that last day, when faith and hope give way, we will see Jesus with our very faces. And that's our hope, that in, our, in this flesh shall I see God. Um, so glorification is what makes us fully and more completely human. That God, in his grace in Christ, is allowing us to enjoy and delight in him completely, perfectly, for, for the first time ever. And I think that that's like, I, I keep stressing this, but it's really important in our day to say that he's not doing that in opposition to our bodies, our desires, or abilities. But that's how God is working through them. God created us with all those things. Sin has distorted them and turned them in on ourselves and through sin makes us selfish and does all kinds of things. It brings the death and evil that we talked about into the world. But when we're glorified, God is going to start bringing those desires and abilities that are God-given and making them complete and making them perfect. And that's what it means to be glorified and human. Um, when we see God with our own eyes, with our own flesh, that is when our happiness, our blessedness, our glory will perfectly coincide with God's for the first time. That is what has only begun right now, in part. We're starting in this Christian life, and God is slowly starting to turn our desires away from the flesh, away from sin, away from evil, and he's slowly ordering them back to himself. He's slowly doing that. It's not going to be perfect, but over time, he's constantly leading us back to himself. But in, in glorification, there's not going to be that tension. There's not going to be that struggle that we daily kind of battle against sin and temptation. We're just going to be able to perfectly love God and each other. And and that duty will be our delight. Um, we have beheld God's glory, the glory of his only begotten, right now, the Son of God. And we're receiving this grace upon grace. And, he's, and his spirit has made us partakers of, of the divine nature. And... Paul says it in this way that though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison so what we live in that tension that makes us feel uncomfortable between we already start seeing the beginning of that salvation which makes us hungry for more and then so angry and so disappointed when we sin and we just like are constantly in frustration, constantly having that frustration mode, you know. Um, and we're like, oh, man, I just wish I would stop sinning. 
And then we just taste a little bit of that glory and we're being renewed inside. And then we just feel in our very bodies that body of death that we carry around in us. But God is constantly putting out that hope and saying, I'm preparing a place for you. I am renewing you on the inside. And I'm preparing you and setting you aside for that day. One of the reformers and pastor, John Calvin, often said that when we are in church on Sunday and we take the sacrament, take the Lord's Supper, that God is setting us aside for the day of glorification. As we take that part of what Christ has done for us, we hear his word, we're being renewed from the inside out. Our very bodies, God is setting us aside for holiness. God is setting us aside for the day of glorification and for the resurrection. All those things God is constantly putting out to us to remind us that our whole salvation has been won by the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, who's gone before us, who's already paved this path through through death into the resurrection hope, showing us that it's going to happen, showing us that that's the reality. Um, any questions or thoughts before I move to the third point? So the resurrection of the body and glorification, these are the things that that are held out to us, not a disembodied state in heaven where there's going to be souls flitting about, but that's going to be the, that's the way station until the resurrection of the body, until we are glorified and perfectly made human and complete like we were meant to be. So glorification is post-resurrection of the body? Um, yes. I mean, probably at the same time. I mean, I would probably say that the same thing, okay. but I'm just like trying to like talk about sure. them just to divide it up a little. So for those who are alive, when Jesus comes back, they'll just go into glorification and resurrection. So this might be pedantic or unnecessary, but in heaven, we will still be our sinful souls? No. No, I mean, I think that in many ways that God will, in some sense, when we are with him, those things won't hold us down. Those things won't be a part of us. But we just won't be embodied as we were meant to be. And so glorification and the resurrection of the body is going to be ultimately when we're clothed with immortality as in our in our flesh. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, but in heaven, when we're in the intermediate state, we won't be sinful. Um, God, because we'll be in God's holy presence. He can't can't be right. Yep. That's a great question. Good point. Um, so, heaven, heaven and the life everlasting. So we've we've talked about the resurrection and the glorification of the body so far, but but what is what is heaven and what is this life everlasting? And then we also mentioned the new heavens and new earth. How do those things all kind of relate to each other? Um, well, heaven, in many ways, is. This picture, like we, we mentioned before when we talked about the ascension, it's like this great throne room. It's God's courtroom where his will is perfect, where, every, where his glory is. It's, it's a created place, but it's where his glory and his dignity and majesty is completely perfect. Uh, it's where God is displaying, in some sense, like his courtroom. 
there's a sense where the, the Bible shows it to be this kingly place where his like the train of his robe is just like filling everything and, and his glory is just blazing like the sun. So like all the images are just and the metaphors and pictures we have is just like this this place of absolute glory and and holiness. Yes, like a king's courtroom. And like a judge too. So I mean like it's just in a certain sense where it's the king and he's and he's a judge and there are even like Satan as the adversary is this idea of him being like this lawyer when he was in heaven and he's accusing people. He's accusing the saints. So there is that sense where it's like where it is a courtroom, but it's also like a war room. It's the king's war room and his war zone where he's 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 getting his battle on, you know, and he's conquering his enemies. And so this this is the place where the kingly glory is on full display. Like we had that image that we talked about from Lord of the Rings where where Aragorn is going up into the city after he's defeated all the evil minions of Mordor and Sauron is dead and the Dark Lord has died and he's coming up in his full you know regalia and, and he's like all these amazing wonderful people and his army is there. Like that's the picture of heaven and the ascension of Christ going into heaven and it just being full of his glory. And the Lamb is there on his throne and all these creatures are praising him and it's just filled with constant praise to God's glory. And that's where, that is in many ways where God's will is perfect and complete. That is where everything is as at it, as it should be. And that, that, that place is ultimately what God wants to spread everywhere. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on on earth as it is in heaven. It's that it's that ultimately that heaven and all that glory is supposed to come down to earth and fill everything. Um, the future hope is that heaven will come down to earth and that the whole universe will be renewed. And that's what the picture in the end of the Bible of the new heavens and new earth that we talked about. Um, but before we kind of move on, why should we, why should we believe in heaven? I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. We haven't really experienced it. We haven't seen it. Why should we believe in heaven? Um, this seems really central to so much of the hope that we have in the New Testament. But why is it something that we have to believe in a part of the creed? Like as something essential to the Christian faith. Um, well, first reason is because because Jesus was raised from the dead. So, as we said before, that the no resurrection means no hope, and therefore no heaven. If if Jesus wasn't raised and, and ascended into the heavens, then that is it's just that simple. Um, if Jesus was contained by death, then we will be too. But if he if he cracked that barrier, if he cracked the barrier of death, then that means that there's something out there for us to hope in. It means there's just a reality that he has broken into this world for the first time. Even though right now it seems very foggy. Like I think like in our day, 
the idea of heaven just seems like something you can't even get through. I don't know about you, but some days it just seems like how in the world can we live having faith in this thing that nobody has seen? How can we even believe and hope in something like heaven? All language about the future seems to be like this just fog. The weatherman can't even talk about the future. They can't even get the weather right. Politicians and economists, they don't know what's happening. They can't tell you what's going to happen. So how are we going to know for certain that if we're going to put all our blue chips, all the chips on Jesus, as it were, how can we really know? Um, But because Jesus, as we said, was, was raised from the dead, because he went through that fog, he went through death itself, and he came forward out of the fog to meet us, so it were, so as it were. He, he's already went to heaven, and he came back, and he came through that fog. We can, in many ways, trust the person who's gone ahead of us. Um, a lot of people can speculate and argue with us about all these kinds of things, but if someone really died and came back, I'm going to believe that person over all these other speculations, someone who actually went there, someone who actually was already on the other side and broke through it. And that's what the New Testament hope is ultimately saying we have, is that Jesus has gone through that barrier. He's broken through it, gone to the other side, and come back. And he is the one who's going to dissolve that fog. He's the one who's going to remove all those doubts at the end of the day. So the entire hope of everything that we're talking about, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, stands or falls with this resurrection of Jesus. So when we talk about our resurrection, we can't help but talk about Jesus's because that is the paradigm. Like That is the example the Bible points out as to why we can believe in heaven and the hope to come. Does that make sense? Is that... Yeah, um, that if Christ is not raised, then our hope is false. But if he was, then all the barriers between us and death and beyond into heaven have been broken. And we can really trust in God that this has happened, that heaven isn't just this thing that we tell children so that they, you know, act nice and and we tell them in Sunday school because it's just a nice kind of story. Um, But no, we can really believe because we know that Jesus was raised from the dead that there's something beyond death. There's something is beyond that and heaven is for real. Um, Secondly, so because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can know heaven is. But secondly, because God is a God of promise um, who's faithful to his promises. And we see that all throughout history. Um, you can't get very far into your Bible without discovering all of these promises that God is making. He makes all these promises to Abraham, including making him into a great nation, which he fulfills. A nation so big that it would bless the entire world and eventually include Gentiles like us. He fulfills that promise. And that he would give him this promised land, this place of safety, that he would dwell with Abraham's descendants 
He's done that. And all those things were just a foretaste, a picture, a shadow of this greater promise of heaven. From Abraham to Moses and to David, all these different promises, even in the prophets, as Israel goes out into exile. And then we see with Jesus, the fulfillment of all these thousands of prophecies and all these miraculous things that happened that all kinds of secular and non-Christian and Jewish and Roman historians have said have happened. Not just Christian ones, but non-Christian ones. That God has done these specific things. God is a God of promise. And ultimately, all those things were this were based on this one promise that God would be with his people and dwell with them forever. Like if we if we if we boil down all those promises of, of like leading even up to Jesus, it's that I will be your God and you will be my people, and I'm gonna dwell with you in safety. And and that is the promise of heaven. Like that is the promise of the new heavens and new earth, that all those things were just previews of, coming attractions of the greater thing. So the heaven that's promised in the Bible begins with Abraham all these thousands of years ago, but then it ends with the new heavens and new earth. So the case for heaven, I think, is really strong because God is a God of promise, and we've seen how many times he's fulfilled those things, and we can really trust that this is going to happen, that this will happen, that heaven is for sure because it's based on Jesus' own blood. And third, I think another reason we should believe in heaven is because the Bible's view of justice is in many ways really incomplete without a new heavens and new earth, without believing in heaven. So the third in this case that I'm saying is that justice, that the justice in the Bible demands that all things that were wrong be made right. That all evil that has happened will be undone. And not only undone, as we're saying, but but glorified and perfected. Not only is this like, okay, we're, we're not going to be dead anymore. We're going back to you know how we were before. But we're actually going to be moving beyond that, be perfected and glorified. And so the whole Bible's understanding of justice is this vision where God is bringing peace and perfection and what talks about shalom and the Sabbath rest to the whole universe. Sin can't be paid for twice, right? Right. Yeah. Sin can't be paid for twice. So all the things that Jesus paid for for us is done. And But not only that, he's bought a ticket to perfection. He's not only paid for those things, but he's bought our perfection. And that is what he wants to bring to the whole world. And that's, that's how the Bible depicts justice. It's not going to be skirting under the rug all the evil that's happened and be like, oh, let's just forget about that. You know what I mean? Like It's going to be undoing those things and bringing us to, to, to a life of glory that, that makes those things, makes those injustices 
in some sense, receive their just desserts. Like those things that happened are going to be vindicated. And, the, and God is going to pour out his vengeance on the evil that happened and fully pay for it. No, no, you're good. They're downstairs, huh, So the Bible's very good. Um, sense of justice from, the Mo, from Moses into the prophets, all these different things we see throughout the Bible, you the saints crying in heaven, how long, O Lord? They're calling for justice. It's not going to be complete until God, in many ways, brings that vengeance on sin and death and hell in this whole evil world that rejects him and that his justice is going to kind of go out like a scroll and that peace that we are made for is ushered in. So the Bible's whole sense of justice, the whole sense of what God it is, that means that Jesus is Lord, is wrapped up in this. If there's no heaven, if there's no new heavens and new earth, then there's not going to be any justice. And God is not going to be able to fulfill his promise. God is not going to be faithful. So who God is, his very character is wrapped up with the promise of the new heavens and new earth. Um, and then finally, the, the fourth thing I would reason to say is because the, just the Bible says so. Um, that's just a simple point. But we should believe in heaven and the new heavens and new earth because the Bible says so. Um, the, the case for heaven shouldn't be made just from like near-death experiences or movies that talk about it and people like, oh, I think I had this vision and trusting in those things, but ultimately because the Bible is God's promissory note. The Bible is God's covenant pact saying, I'm going to bring justice. I'm going to bring about what I did with Jesus to the world. I'm going to pro- fulfill my promise. So because the Bible says so, um, that he, the, the, the Jesus is going to bring this new age to come into the world that isn't just escaping our bodies. It's not this ethereal kind of thing, the soul-only reality, however we want to talk about it. But it's this restoration. It's a remaking and recreation of the world into a new heavens and new earth that are perfectly united for the first time. They're no longer at war between peace and war and death and sin and evil and justice. No, those things are going to come together for the first time. Uh, Paul puts it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like, but Christ is the first fruits. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father and after he has destroyed all other dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, with the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So all of these things are going to be put under Christ's feet, that all things are going to be put subjected to him. And God's justice and his understanding of Jesus' reign as king won't happen until that is done. Um, and so, so salvation is this cosmic reality that the Bible puts forth. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and there is no longer any sea. But I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard this loud voice from the throne of God saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the, old order of th- for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. Write down these words, for they are trustworthy and true. So until that happens, until that marvelous, wonderful scene happens, you know, we will die and go to heaven waiting for that final judgment, waiting for the resurrection of the body. Um... So we do have that comfort, and I don't want to undermine that. We do have that comfort that to be away with the body is present with the Lord. But as we said, we all long to be fully clothed with, with, with the immortality, with the imperishable body like Jesus has, to be fully human. So the world is waiting for that day when, when finally heaven will come down to earth and fill the whole world with God's glory. So heaven is, 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 a, is important hope, but the end goal is the new heavens and new earth, when heaven will, kind of, will come down and meet earth, and the whole world will be filled and enter into God's Sabbath rest, that peace and that justice, that shalom, that... In the end, it's not that creation will be destroyed, but all that threatens it, all that threatens our hope and fulfillment. Emotions won't pass away, but fear and the sound of mourning will. Our desires won't disappear, but the desire for sin will, and we'll be unendingly fulfilled and fulfilled with with true joy. Isaiah puts it this way, he says, Come all who are thirst, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. There's nothing about this kind of thing where we're going to be bouncing around in the clouds up in the smoke. It's, it's, it's a real embodiedness and the fulfillment of everything it means to be human. Um... Heaven is this glorious, the new heavens and new earth is going to be this glorious place where we're, all, we're, meant, where we're going to be everything that we were meant to be. It'll be a continual searching out of the glory of God. It'll be a continual searching out of, you know, what C.S. Lewis says in the, in the last battle. Like when, when, when the renewal of all these things happened, that, that green is going to be more green than I ever imagined. That taste is going to be so much more tasting than I ever could be. That my embodiedness is going to be so much more real that it feels like this is just a shadow. And the whole world is going to be filled with God's glory. And we're going to be, just going to be going up and discovering that. A never-ending country of going up further up and further in, as he says. And it's just like this glorious picture it's not going to be, yeah, it'll be filled with praising God, but 
in all of our embodiedness, in all of what it means to be human and active and creative and real loving people that we are and with other people around us and eating and feasting and drinking and all those things will be done to the glory of God. All the things that are special treasures and memories in this on this earth will be given back to you and renewed and restored ten times over. That's like that's like the picture that all the metaphors of the Bible picture for us. It's a really wonderful scene. Oh man. Um, so in conclusion, I think we have to wrap up pretty soon. Um, so the so what like so. I think one of the things that when we're so bogged down with this present evil age of sin and death, we can often wonder if is all this pain and suffering really worth it? Like I think that now down to the nitty gritty, like that's the question that Christians constantly carry with us. Is this really worth it? Like holding on to faith and not giving in to my desires, is it really worth it? You know, being faithful and doing all these things. Is the new heavens and new earth really worth it? Um, and I want to say that that this picture that I that I see in the scriptures of what the new heavens and new earth are, that even though there are many sorrows and trials and deaths in this world and evil, um, yet the love and the joy that has resulted in God creating this world and allowing sin to come in, the love and joy can't be compared to the sorrow. It's really good that God created this world and allowed creatures this existence and the freedom to love, even even knowing that we would choose evil. Um, one of my favorite authors, J.R.R. Tolkien, has this great line. He says that darkness you know, must pass. The new day shall come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. The resulting beauty in us and love and joy that God is doing in the love of Christ, especially in the midst of our weaknesses, can't compare to the glory that's to come. Um, the world that would have not known this joy and this love and the redemption that has happened, that even though love is you know mingled with grief, that love that we see in the midst of all those things grows perhaps greater. The fair and the wonderful things in this world are so good. You are so good. God says you are so good and beautiful that you are worth the chance of it. The chance of it all. And he shows that worth and that value and that beauty by sending his son. That the fall and sin and decay in this world is worth it for that redemption that he's bringing about. That each one of you is worth it. The glory that God is bringing into the world, even in the midst of our weaknesses and all the sin and suffering that happens. Um, The life everlasting is worth it. It's so much beyond the trials of this life that Paul says that it's like a drop in the bucket. In comparison to that ocean of joy that is to come. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For what we see around us is transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's why he says we can we don't have to lose heart. Though our outer self is, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So in our in our resurrection bodies, we will do in this new creation all that Adam and Eve were supposed to do in Eden. We're going to reign over God's world and enjoy God forever and each other. And nothing that we're going through, Paul, who was tortured and died almost several times, and who did all these things because he saw the resurrected Jesus and he had this vision of heaven. He said, I was brought to the third heaven. He went through all this suffering that I can't even compare, like I can't even imagine. And he says, nothing we're going through can compare to that. Nothing we're going through. That our future life will be more real, more substantial, and we'll be more human than we can hope or imagine. That all our present sorrows and frustrations won't compare to the glory that God has for us as he dwells with us forever. And so that is our that is our Christian hope when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That that is what our hope is as Christians. I guess I have to close there, but any thoughts or questions or comments before we wrap up? You know, there's a lot. It's like trying to but it's like those visions and those metaphors and the picture of the Bible are just so beyond anything we can grapple with because it's so much infinitely greater than we can imagine. But no. Right. What's up with the difference? What's up with, with leaving that out? Yeah. Um, why do we recite the one that leaves that out? So why do, we, why do we recite the one that has he descended into hell? Well, what what? If, how do we get that difference? How how do we know that or know that that's not true? Right. Um, Sorry, that's a big. No, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I would say that in some sense the phrase he descended into hell is emphasizing what it's talking about about his crucifixion. That it can be left out and we don't lose anything because he's not descending into this place of hell. But it's talking about that whole his whole passion and his whole suffering and his whole life of Suffering was him entering into the wages of our sin and death, which is hell. So he is descending into that with his whole existence. Um, so it's not losing anything by taking it out, because in in the in at least in the, in the Protestant understanding of the of the creed, it's talking about his excuse me his passion, his death, and his suffering, not him going to a physical place of hell. Um, like some Roman Catholics or maybe dispensationalists or other people think he's going to a specific place. So I don't think it's losing anything. But yeah, so I'm not. But I'm not sure as to 
the textual critical issues of whether or not we should, what is the best tradition, but I kind of, I don't mind going with that, what we've received in terms of having it in there. Sorry, I'm not. No, I, yeah. I, I don't know my point. It, it okay. It popped up in my pea brain and like. Oh, no. Uh, and it seems like I wanted to hear your take on it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, there's a real sense like Jesus' rejection and the suffering of the cross being utterly cast out. Like the picture that the Bible's portraying is that he's going into the outer darkness outside the camp. Right. He's going into hell. The wage for our sin, right? Right. He actually paid the full amount. Right. He paid hell for us on the cross. And that is ultimately the, what, it's, what it's saying. Um, I get that. Yeah. Cool. That's how I, I kind of held on to it in my mind. Yeah. So it's not a chronological progression of him doing this, 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 and then descending into hell. It's kind of like an aside. It's kind of like describing all those things that just happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments? Well, let's end with a word of prayer then. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this quarter where we've studied and gone through the creed. What a wonderful discussion and what a wonderful time we've had just learning more and more what it means to confess this true and faithful document of what it means to be a Christian. We pray, Lord, that we would think more about heaven and think more about the hope that we have and the new heavens and new earth and and the justice and peace and beauty and wonder that you have for us and that the things that we're going through in this life really can't compare to the eternal weight of glory that you have for us in Jesus, who is in many ways the purpose of heaven, the hope of heaven is being with him and being with you for eternity. And we ask that you prepare our hearts as we come to worship you, that we would be eager to hear the word and and praise your name. In your son's name we ask. Amen.